Let me, uh, before we get started, let me give uh, a little more context around this particular series as well, because uh, I think that could be important. Uh, at Newcom, we view talks on a given Sunday to have a particular purpose to them, okay? What I mean by that is generally the talks are intended to motivate, uh, to encourage, uh, to remind, or perhaps to call to action, to provoke us towards something. Um, it's really intended to point the community either toward action or to remind the community of the gospel. That's how we view what the talks are to be on a given Sunday morning. It is not to fill your head with theological jargon or to help you memorize the books of the Bible in order. It uh, is not intended to be a theology class um, because that's not the way we view the purpose of talks on a given Sunday. However, I say that and at the same time I say there are times that we as a staff and a group of elders feel compelled to stray a bit from the normal, typical Sunday morning kind of talk to cover something that we feel is either vitally important to uh, the skill development of the community or even to the general understanding of the community. And I would say that this uh, particular series in Genesis has been such a series so far where we have taken time, especially over these last few weeks, uh, to maybe get a little bit more into the minutia than we have tended to in the past. And uh, hopefully these last two weeks and then again hopefully this week and uh, the two weeks to come will <coughs> have you both learning things and unlearning things. Because true learning, I am convinced, is more than just picking up new information. I tend to resonate with a, a quote by G.K. Chesterton, which says this. It'll be on the screen. If you like to put it so, the chief object of education is not to learn things. Nay, the chief object of education is to unlearn things. The idea is that not only are we adding new information, but sometimes the best learning we can actually do is to unlearn some things so that we can gather new material to move forward. So I wanted to say this morning as we started, thank you for being on the journey with us through this series in Genesis. I am convinced that this section of the scriptures serves as a guiding light for our understanding of all that God is communicating to us through his text. And uh, it's vital that we, as a community, journey on this together to reach what I think God is intending for us uh, as his people, all right? Um, I also wanted to say before we started that I think this series uh, speaks to the maturity of this community. And what I mean by that is this community is mature enough to wrestle with truth and to come out on the other side, both growing personally and even more importantly, together. And uh, so I have been very encouraged by these first two weeks uh, because we're chasing after some really good stuff, and uh, it has been fun so far. Um, I want to start off this morning by giving just a few reminders again, and then I am going to attempt to answer one big question, and I'm going to do so with a few statements. All right, so here are the reminders. First off, I reminded you of this last week. I'm going to say it again because I think it's super important. This series builds. One week builds on top of the other, which builds on top of the other. 
which builds on top of the other. Um, so it is vital that you have heard or gleaned the material of the last two weeks. Uh, if this is your first Sunday here and or it's been your first Sunday in a while, um, I am not going to use this Sunday to go back and rewind and talk about what we talked about so far. Uh, in part because if I did, that would be the entirety of the talk, would just be reminding the amount of material we covered the last week, okay? Uh, so I'm going to move forward. We're going to go forward with it, but it also means that if um, this is your first Sunday getting any of this material, you're, uh, at the end your head might be spinning a little bit because it might feel completely untethered um, to the material that we covered before. So it's not to say it won't make sense, it'll just make less sense, okay? But still, stick with us. Uh, number two, uh, second reminder, uh, the why is more important than the how. I think this is so, so important for us to get. The why is more important to the author and to the readers than the how. So you might be concerned with the how. You might be like, how did this happen? How did the creation story go about? What were each of the days like? What, what is the whole thing telling us, right? You might be concerned from a Western perspective in a Western society with the how. The author and the original readers could care less about the details that concern you. They're more concerned with the why, right? Why are we here? Why were we created? Who created us? What is the purpose? What, is, what are we created for? What is God's intention? All of that kind of stuff. It's all about the why and has very little, if anything, to do with the how, all right? And third, at Newcom, we love questions. We love questions. We aspire as a community to never shy away from questions. We believe the old adage that says, where there are no questions, there is no learning. If you're not Coming up with questions and wrestling with something, it's likely that you're not learning something at the same time. So, because we value that, and because we value learning, we seek to be inquisitive, we pursue growth, we are not afraid of change, we're willing to lean into the tension of trying to figure something out and doing that together as a collective community. So, here's the deal. Um, you have, I think, sheets of paper that are kind of lining throughout the pews. They look like that. Chad, will you hold up that sheet for me? Right there. Oh, yeah. Hold that up. Boom. Chad is in his green for St. Patty's Day. Told me this morning he will not pinch me, even if I didn't have green on, so no fear. Okay? Thanks, Chad. Um, if you have a question from the last two weeks or a question from this week, here's the deal. Write it down on that sheet of paper. At the end, when you leave, there'll be buckets out by the doors. Julie's holding up one right now. Just throw it in there. Here's what's going to happen next week. After the service, uh, there's going to be a 30-minute Q&A time in the chapel. So the service will end. We'll uh, do the benediction. We'll send everybody on their way. If you're like, man, I put a question in there, and I want to know the answer, great. In there for 30 minutes, we're going to go through the questions. If there aren't any questions... We'll just leave it completely open for new questions. Um, so that's what the intent is next week. If you have any questions about what we've covered or where we've been, please do not hesitate to put those in. All right? Which leads us to our big question of the morning. 
which I will reveal, and then we will pray for a moment. All right, here's the big question. What is account number two telling us? That is the big question. What is Genesis chapter two, and what is this particular account intending to communicate to us? All right, let me pray. God, we want to hear your word clearly. We want to understand what it is you're saying to us. More importantly, we want to understand what it is you are saying to the original readers so that we might grasp uh, what your text is communicating and that we might invite us to live the way that you've intended it to for us to live. Help us to not get uh, bogged down in some of the details, uh, but rather help us to see through those details to the very intentions of what you're wanting us to know. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So my attempt is to answer this question this morning. What is account number two in Genesis 2 seeking to tell us? And I want to do that by making three points with a few subpoints. okay? Um, I know we have covered a lot of material, and uh, I'm trying to be as exact or as detailed as possible. All right? So big statement number one. There's going to be three big statements. Big statement number one, Genesis 2. The second creation account, we talked about this last week, is not a recapitulation of day six, but rather a sequel to the first account, okay? Now, I will say this. Most Christians tend to read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and combine them into one particular account, okay? Um, And this is essentially meaning that they take chapter 2 and say, oh, it's a restatement of or a recommunication of what happened on day 6 in Genesis 1. Now, we do this a lot with Scripture. This is something that uh, happens quite frequently, and we do it a lot in the Gospels. Here's where it's most easy to see. In the very beginning of the New Testament, we have a story. We tend to pull it out right around December 24 and 25. It's Christmas, right? Real big part of our Christian calendar is something we're super excited about. What we do is we take the account in Matthew. We take the account in Luke. We shove them together into one account. And that means that we then have our shepherds and our wise men in the same manger scene. Didn't happen that way. They're really two separate accounts telling us two different things, but hey, throw the extra little, you know, figurines in there. It'll be great, and it'll, you know, we'll pay for them. It'll cost more, but no worries, right? Because what we've done is we've combined two accounts that were never intended to be combined because they're totally intended to communicate different things. So that's what we tend to do. What we have here in Genesis is two separate, individual, completely different accounts by two different authors, So we need to treat them accordingly, okay? Now, I'll give you two reasons why Genesis 2 is a sequel and not a recapitulation story. The first one is this. The first account and the second account are separated by a formula that is a common structural element in Genesis, okay? The formula goes like this. There's an element with a particular term. That term means account or story or generations in the Hebrew. The formula occurs 11 times throughout the book of Genesis. So 11 times you see this exact same thing happening that you see happening in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Now, three of those 11 occurrences are what's called a recursive, meaning that the section 
uh, kind of restates something. And generally, this is what it looks like. There's a genealogy. Uh, this so-and-so begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so. And then the next story is the story of one person in that genealogy. Okay? So that would be considered a recursive. The other times, every other time that it's used, the rest of the cases transition from an account to a sequel account. Every other time. Okay? So n nowhere does the formula ever lead to a recapitulation or a retelling of the exact same story? Never, okay? Now, people who hold to the idea that this account is a recapitulation of day six tend to read the first account literally. Now, this brings me to the second kind of subpoint under that. There are several problems with reading um, the first, or this section as a recapitulation. First one, creation story in the first account has a different order than the creation story in the second account. We talked about that last week. Okay, I won't go into it now because I said I wouldn't. All right. Secondly, day six runs into a very difficult, if you read it literally, very difficult 24-hour problem if you're believing that the first account is a material creation of the world. We talked about last week. It's not a material creation of the world. It's a seven-day ceremony, a temple ceremony, to designate the earth as sacred space. Listen to the podcast, okay? So, let me explain why this is difficult for it to be a 24-hour day, all right? I'll just walk you through chapter 2 and what it explains to us to help us to understand it. First off, Adam is made, okay? We don't know how long that took, nor do we know what time of the day it took, but at some point in that 24-hour period, Adam is created, if you're taking the literal material creation. Now, at that point, he begins to explore the world that God has created for him to dwell in. All right? Not only that, he walks in the cool of the day with God. And he checks out everything that's been created. He spends time with God, and he gets lonely. Okay? Now, imagine for a moment. Just pause right there at this part of the story. Imagine for a moment that Adam has breathed into him the breath of life and he sees the world as we know it. And he sees the rivers and he sees every animal that's been created in all its variety. And he sees the sunset or the sun, moon and stars. He's like walking around and going, oh my goodness, this is a leaf. And holy cow. Look at that deer that ran by. And let me see. And like he's just going and seeing everything. And it's all brand new because he's never seen it before. Like there's mountains and there's valleys and this is incredible. And then he takes a little pause on that part and goes, and there's God. And he walks with me and he talks with me in the cool of the day and we're hanging out. And I get to ask God any question I want and I get to enjoy him. And we're in a relationship with each other and it's incredible. But before we're not even at noon yet, he's like, hey God, I'm lonely though. This isn't working out well. I don't enjoy everything you've created and I'm getting a little bored of you. So I need something more, right? That happens in the 24-hour period. And then God goes, okay, well, I'll create animals, because in this account, it has it in reverse order. So I'll create animals to help you find a suitable helper. So he then creates all the animals. Then he 
presents them to Adam. Adam names every single one of the animals to find the suitable helper to which he doesn't find. And then God puts him into a deep sleep. He wakes up from the deep sleep. He's introduced to Eve, right? And they fall in love and live happily, not ever after, but till chapter 3 when they screw the whole thing up, okay? <laughs> That's what happens in this story in that 24-hour period. It, it's a problem. It creates a conundrum, right? B but if it's not a material creation, and it's not, it's instead a story about the creation of a temple understanding of the world, then we don't have that same problem. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? If Genesis 2 is not a recapitulating day 6 of the first account, then we are free to think differently about the account. If Genesis 2 is a sequel, then it can mean, listen carefully, it can mean that the humans God creates in Genesis 1 are not Adam and Eve specifically, but humanity in general, of which Adam and Eve are a part. Okay? And DNA would definitely suggest that that's the case. Now, we begin to see Adam and Eve aren't necessarily the first and only humans, but rather the first humans with whom God describes his relationship. So think, Genesis 1's account, God created, and then humans. Okay? Lots. Then he, in chapter 2, is describing, or the author is writing, and is then specifically talking about his intentional relationship with two individuals and is describing that account. This means that Adam and Eve might be a part of a larger story or a different story, and we'll get to that in a few moments, all right? Which takes us to big statement number two. Adam and Eve are about all humans, not just two humans. About all humans, not just two humans, okay? So stick with me. Instead of Adam and Eve being prototypes, okay, the first of many to come, they are archetypes, or the model of many to come. Which means that when Genesis refers to Adam and Eve, it isn't just referring to a couple of historical figures or individuals, but rather it's a reference to all of us. Now, there is likely, and I think that you need to hear this, there is likely a historical Adam and Eve. The scriptures seem to indicate that or assume for that to be the case but they are used almost exclusively as archetypes of humanity in general. So two people who represent all of us. Now, you might be asking then, how are we supposed to know this? Thanks for asking. Let's talk about it. Two reasons, identity and language. Two reasons why this is the case, identity and language. So, we'll tackle identity first. In the text, there's two particular parts to the forming. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Chapter 2, or in the second account, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, these are the, what we would define as the descriptors of Adam and Eve and their forming. But these are not material formation, but rather intended to communicate identity, okay? Remember, chapter 1 is not material creation, and neither is chapter 2. You might say to yourself, but listen, there's the word formed. We all know what formed means. He formed, like clay, a human, and then he took a rib and formed Eve. Uh, I'm not going to, for the sake of time, go through every example of the word formed in the Old Testament. But if you do, you'll notice that at least half of them are not creating anything. They're using form as a different, an entirely different word, okay? Meaning representative of, but not necessarily the creation of, okay? Now, to get into identity a little more, you'll notice two primary words that are very important. The first being dust. Adam is described as being of dust. This is intended to communicate his mortality. All throughout the Old Testament, you can go back and look on your own time, you will see references to dust, right? All of those references are always to the mortality of humanity, right? Uh, just recently, you had Ash Wednesday. Many of you came and received ashes. When you receive the ashes, there's generally two statements you can make. As a minister, I choose to make the statement that says that you are deeply loved by God, and so he is inviting you to repent and believe the gospel. That is what I use. Most ministers will use the term, from dust you were formed into dust you return, right? And again, it's reminding us of our mortality. It's reminding us of our sin. It's reminding us of our weakness. That's the intention of that moment, right? Because dust always speaks to the mortality of mankind. Now, a rib. Rib is where we get this idea that woman was made from the rib of man. Now, rib is a very literal literary support for the translation of the Hebrew word as rib. It's a very poor translation. Out of the 35 times that the exact same Hebrew word appears in the Old Testament, this is the only time it's translated as rib. The other 34 times, it's translated as something else. Most of the time, the word is translated as side, right? Even Adam speaks to this idea when he says that now Eve is bone of my bone and what? Flesh of my flesh. He doesn't think to himself, I am missing a rib, right? That's not what is going through his mind at the moment, right? Because even he is speaking of it quite different. The literal word usage is never, ever translated as part of anatomy anywhere in all of the text. It's an architectural term. And the architectural term always indicates the side of something. Meaning, it's like two sides of the same door. If you look at that, there's two sides to the door. That's what it's indicating, or two sides of a building, or if you've ever looked at a leaf before and you got the line right down the middle, there's two sides to the leaf. 
That's how it's used throughout the Old Testament. So it's best to be understood as one side of Adam, okay? So a more literal understanding would be the other half, okay? The idea, if you were going to think about it, would be like Adam being sawed in two or flayed open like you would a rack of ribs, right? Okay, now we're sticking with similar language. The other half of Adam, two parts of the whole of humanity, right? So it's about companionship and equality, which also speaks to this idea, and I think this is vitally important, that if Eve just came from a rib of Adam, there would not be infused into the very idea of Genesis that the woman is the equal other half of humanity, right? That's an important part for us to understand. So both of these ideas of identity speak to humanity, not in the literal material creation of the first man and woman, but speak to the identity of humanity, the man and the woman, which takes us into, because I know some of you are like, wow, that just seems a little, it takes us into this, okay, which is language. I'll try to go quick through this, because I know we'll be running out of time. Language. Understanding this section, it hinges on your understanding of the word Adam, or Adam, okay? Adam, or Adam. Now, Adam is used throughout the, go- or the book of Genesis in some unique ways, and I want to point them out. The word Adam in Hebrew means what? Human. Okay, the word Adam means human. I want to pause for a moment because this is a very important uh, observation. It means that the designation human was imposed by the author being God, right? This is significant because it means that Adam would not have called Eve Eve, and Eve, excuse me, would not have called Adam Adam because they didn't speak Hebrew, okay? Hebrew does not exist as a language until somewhere in the middle of the second millennium B.C., which means that these names are not just a matter of the author writing down the names of the first two people, right? They're not historical names. They are assigned names, Now, this is interesting because that means that the writer chose to assign the name Adam, meaning human, and Eve, meaning to live or to breathe. So the assigned names mean human life, essentially, right? That was the assigned names from the author. So how is Adam used throughout Genesis 1 through 5? Here. This is how. In Genesis 1 to 5, the following uses happen. It refers to human beings as species. It refers to a male individual of the species. And then it's a designation of a particular individual as the equivalent of a personal name, meaning like Russ or Adam. Adam. Okay? Now, the way that you determine the usage has everything to do with the definite article, the because it's attached to the word. So here, this is very important. When the definite article is attached to the word, Adam, it can never be understood as a personal name. The the Adam, or the human, would be speaking of humanity and not an individual person, okay? 
part of that is because, or all of that is because, Hebrew does not put definitive or definite articles on personal names, okay? So hopefully everyone's tracking. Here are the uses of Adam in Genesis 1 through 5. 22 times it's the definite article is used. Those are the listings. I'm not going to go through each. Three times there's an attached preposition that's tied to the name. And then nine times there's no definite article or preposition. So here's what you need to hear really clear. The 22 times, every time that the word Adam is used, every single time it means human or humanity in general. Those 22 times. The three times, right? The three times that there's an attached preposition. It is unclear in the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew English version always translates it as the definite form. So you can move those three up to the 22. Now we're at 25. The other nine times where there is no designation, track with me quick, in 126 and in 2.5, it's referring to generic humanity. So those two would move up. In 4.25, it's tied to 4.1. And in 5.1, it's referring back to 1.26. So both of those would move up. Which means the only time that Adam is used as a personal individual name like Russ would be in Genesis 5.1 through 4. Or 5. It's those few times, and those few times are all a part of the genealogy. How many times, if Adam and Eve are the central figures to all of the Old Testament, how many times are Adam and Eve mentioned throughout the rest of the Old Testament? After chapter 5 of Genesis, the answer is zero, except for one time in First Chronicles, which is the last book in the Hebrew Bible, not our English version, right? That's and in a genealogy. So the only times that the word Adam refers to a person individually with a name is genealogy in chapter 5 and at the very end. And then in the New Testament is always referred to in archetypal terms. That's very, very important. Last point. And I know we're over, so I'll go really, really fast through this one. Okay? Genesis 1 through 11 was written during the Babylonian exile. This is very, very important. And the reason it's important is because there's strong evidence to suggest that's when it's written, and when something is written plays a significant role in how you would understand it. Now, a couple things. We assume Genesis was written first simply because it covers material that we assume to be at the very beginning, right? But we also know it isn't. Job is the first book written, but we can get to that some other talk. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 are mentioned or written much later and aren't written by Moses. In fact, there's large sections of the Pentateuch not written by Moses, again, for another talk, okay? What you instead have is a moment where you have a group of people in Babylonian exile writing about the creation or the start of everything they know. This is important because you have a group of people who believe that they are chosen by God, that believe the promised land was their rightful uh, claim, that believe that they are cared for and loved deeply, but now are about a century into being persecuted, being controlled by someone else, be, having, not having life 
the way it's intended, and the kinds of questions that are coming up for them would be things like, how did we get here? And this stinks. What happened? I thought we were God's chosen people. I thought there were promises. I thought we would have the promised land. I thought all of that would happen, and it's not happening. Why? In that context is when we began to see the writings that you see in Genesis 1 through 11, meaning the people began to write down their oral story. And the story they're writing down is, this is who we are. This is how we've been created. This is why it's important. This is why our God is unlike all the other gods. This is why his promises will come true. This is why we really screwed this whole thing up. And you see that this is the story that's coming out of this very particular moment in their history. Now, I think this is vitally important. I'm going to skip a whole other page of material just for the sake of time. But I will say this to kind of wrap up. Um, there we have covered a lot in the first three weeks. We're going to cover a bit more in the final two weeks to get us through chapter three. Now, I know that these three weeks have given uh, many of us a fair bit of learning and many of us a fair bit of unlearning. And that can be challenging. There's several ways you can look at it. You can either embrace questions and embrace difference and, and feel like invigorated by it, or it could produce a sense of like fear and uncertainty and unknown. I, um, I remember I grew up in a church that I would probably say is unlike almost any church that I've ever known or experienced uh, personally. Um, the church I was a part of was a church plant. It was across the street from a theological seminary. Uh, almost everyone that went to the church was a teacher at the seminary or at a Bible college down the road. And uh, you would sit in a pew, and I kid you not, I would, as a little kid, I would look down the pew and I would say to my dad, Dad, what are they reading, right? You would think it'd be the Bible. Well, it was. It's just nobody had the English version. Everyone literally was carrying their Greek New Testament, if we were in the New Testament in the series, or they were carrying their Hebrew Old Testament and were reading backwards. So I'm like, why are they going like this? That is screwed up. Don't they know it? Get like, my, it to, I kid you not, my third grade Sunday school teacher was a leading archaeologist in the Holy Land. He would be teaching third grade class. He'd be gone for two weeks. Where is our teacher? He's in the Holy Land digging and coming back and then telling us new things and writing books about it, right? That was the church I grew up in. If you don't think our church felt that this was the most important book with the most important words, and they would study it ad nauseum, they would write, they would write books, they would come out with books all the time, but on just a page in this thing. These are the people I prayed with every Wednesday night when I described that last week and they prayed for hours and I'm sitting there as like a 10-year-old going, what is going on? I don't even know you could pray that long, right? That, that is the world I grew up in. To say that the understanding of the text is vital to me and my upbringing is a, just a very small part of the truth. It is so, so important. But what I think my upbringing also failed to do is to say, 
there's room for questions, to say that there's room for uncertainty, to say that there are things that some people understand one particular way, but you might understand a completely different way, and that when you really dig into the text and aren't afraid to ask the questions, that it might lead you to some place that's even more beautiful. I will tell you that in the journey of my life, from being in that church to the point where now I've been here for 12 years, I would say that the Bible to me today is more important, more invigorating, more beautiful, more exciting, more incredible than it has ever been in my life. And it's because of you. It's because of you because you're not afraid to ask the questions. It's because of you because you're not afraid to say, man, just because we always thought something doesn't mean it's always that way. Instead, you've challenged me and yourselves to get in and go, what is it really communicating? How do we really understand what it's saying? Where could we be wrong? Where can the community inform our learning? And it has led, I think, for me, to some of the most beautiful times that I've ever had in God's Word, simply because of the freedom of this community to wrestle with it. So I want to commend you for that. I also want to thank you. Uh, just on a personal level to say how cool is it to be a part of a community where we get to talk about these things and be honest about these things and have this story be even more powerful than if it was just literal in that particular passage. It gets even more powerful and more truthful and more exciting the deeper we dig into it. I've gone far too long. Let's stand and we will do a benediction. I am uh, reading out of uh, part of St. Patrick's prayer that he wrote many, many, many years ago, and it will be our benediction this morning. New community, this is our prayer. Christ with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ in us, Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ on our right and Christ on our left, Christ when we lie down. Christ when we sit down, Christ in the heart of every man and woman who thinks of us, Christ in the mouth of every man and woman who speaks of us, Christ in the eye that sees us, Christ in the ear that hears us, and we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great week.